Volume 1, Chapter 2 of the Heidenmauer, or the Benedictines, A Legend of the Rhine, by James Fedimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Joel Kendrick. The Heidenmauer, by James Fedimore Cooper, Volume 1, Chapter 2. What sayest thou to a hare, or a melancholy of more ditch? King Henry the Fourth. The light had nearly disappeared from the gorge in which the hamlet of Hartenburg lay when Burkhold descended from the castle by a path different from that by which he had entered it an hour before. And crossing the rivulet by a bridge of stone, he ascended the opposite bank into the street, or rather the road. The young forester, having nailed the hounds, had laid aside his leash and fusee, but he still kept the horn suspended from his shoulder. At his side, too, he carried a couteau de chasse a useful instrument in the defense in that age and country, as well as a weapon he was entitled to carry. In virtue of his office under the Count of Lineage in Hartenburg, the master of the hold he had just quitted, and the feudal lord of most of the adjoining mountains, as well as the sundry villages on the plain of the Palatinate. It would seem that the cowherd expected his associate, or perhaps we might venture to call him friend, for such in truth did he appear to be, by the easy terms on which they met. Gottlob was in waiting near the cottage of his mother, and when the two joined each other they communicated by a sign, and proceeded with swift steps, leaving the cluster of houses. Immediately on quitting the hamlet the valley expanded and took that character of fertility and cultivation which has been described to the reader in the introduction. For all who have perused that opening and necessary preface to our labors will at once recognize that the two youths introduced to their acquaintance were now on the mountain basin which contained the Abbey of Lindbergh. But three centuries, while they have effected little in altering the permanent features of the place, have wrought essential changes in those which were more perishable. As the young men moved swiftly on, the first rays of the moon touched on the tops of the mountains, and ere they had gone a mile, always holding the direction of the pass which communicated with the valley of the Rhine, the towers and roofs of the abbey itself were illuminated. The conventual buildings were then perfect, resembling, by their number and confusion, the grouping of some village, while a strong and massive wall encircled the entire brow of the isolated hill. The construction resembled one of those warlike ecclesiastical princes of the Middle Ages who wore armor beneath the stole. For while the towers and painted windows, the pious memorials and votive monuments denoted the objects of the establishment, the defenses betrayed that as much as dependence was placed on human as on other means for protection of those who composed the brotherhood. There is a moon for a monk as well as for a cowherd, it would seem, observed Gottlob, speaking, however, in a voice subdued nearly to a whisper. There comes the light upon the high tower of the abbey, and presently it will be glistening on the bald head of every straggler of the convent who is abroad tasting the last vintage or otherwise prying into the affairs of some burgher of Durkheim. Thou hast not much reverence for the pious fathers, honest Gottlob for it is seldom thou lettest an opportunity pass to do them an ill turn with tongue or hungry beast. Look you, Burkhold, we vassals are little more than so much clear water in which our masters may see his own countenance and it need his own humors. Whenever Lord Emic has a sincere hatred for man or horse, dog or cat, town or village, monk or count, I know not why it is so, but I feel my own collar rise, until I am both ready and willing to strike when he striketh, to curse when he curseth, and to even kill when he killeth. Tis a good temper for a servitor, but it is to be hoped for the sake of Christian credit that the sympathy does not end here, but that thy affections are as social as thy dislikes, more so as there is faith in man. 
Count Emic is a huge lover of the venison pasty of a morning, and I feel a yearning for it the day long. Count Emic will dispatch you a bottle of Durkheim in an hour, whereas two would scarce show my zeal for his honor in the same time. And as for other mortifications of this nature, I am not the man to desert my master for want of zeal. I believe thee, Gottlob, said Burkhold, laughing, and even more than thou canst find words to say in thine own favor on topics like these. But, after all, the Benedictines are churchmen, and sworn to their faith and duty as well as any bishop in Germany, and I do not see the cause of all the dislike of either lord or vassal. Ay, thou art in favor with some of the fraternity, and it is rare that the week passes in which thou art not kneeling before some of their altars. But with me the case is different, for since the penance commanded for the affair of dealing a little freely with one of their herds, I have small digestion for their spiritual food. And yet thou hast paid Peter's pence, said thy prayers, and confessed thy sins to Father Arnoff and all within the month. What wouldst thou have of a sinner? I gave the money on the promise of having it back with usury. I prayed on account of an accursed tooth that torments me, at times in a manner worse than a damned soul is harrowed. And as to confession, ever since my uncommon candor concerning the herd got me into that penance, I confess under favor of a proper discretion. To tell the truth, Master Burkhold, the church is something like a two-year-old wife, pleasant enough when allowed her own way, but a devil of a vixen when folded against her will. The young forester was thoughtful and silent, and as they were now in the vicinity of the hamlet which belonged to the friars of Limburg, his loquacious and purient companion saw fit to imitate his reserve from a motive of prudence. The little artificial lake mentioned in the introduction was in existence at the time of our tale, but the inn, with the ambitious sign of the anchor, is the fruit of far more modern enterprise. When the young men reached a ravine that opened into the mountain near the present site of this tavern, they turned aside from the high road, first taking care to observe that no curious eye watched their movements. Here commenced a long and somewhat painful ascent, by means of a rough path that was only lighted in spots by the rising moon. The vigorous limbs of the forester and the cowherd, however, soon carried them to the summit of the most advanced spur of the adjoining mountain, where they arrived upon an open heath-like plain. Although the discourse between them had been maintained during the ascent, it was in more subdued tones than when beneath the walls of Lindberg, the spirits of Gottlob appearing to ooze away the higher he mounted. "'This is a dreary and a courage-killing waste, Burkhold,' whispered the cowherd as his foot touched the level ground. "'And it is even more disheartening to enter on it by the aid of the moon than in the dark. Hast ever been nearer to Tufelstein at this hour?' "'I came upon it once at midnight.' for it was there I made acquaintance with him that we are now about to visit. Did I never relate the manner of that meeting? What a habit hast thou of taxing a memory? Perhaps if thou wert to repeat it, I might recall the facts by the time thou wert ended, and to speak truth, thy voice is comfortable on this sprite's common. The young forester smiled, but without derision, for he saw that his companion, spite of his indifference to all grave subjects, was, as is generally the case, the most affected of the two when put to a serious trial, and perhaps he also remembered the difference that education had made in their powers of thinking. That he did not treat the subject as one of light import himself was also apparent by the regulated and cautious manner in which he delivered the following account. I had been on the chases of Lord Emick since the rising of the sun, commenced Burkhold, for there was need of more than common vigilance to watch the neighboring boars. 
The search had led me far into the hills, and the night came, not as it is now seen, but so pitchy dark that, accustomed as I was from childhood to the forest, it was not possible to tell the direction of even a star, much less that of the castle. For hours I wandered, hoping at each moment to reach the opening of the valley, when I found myself of a sudden in a field that appeared endless and uninhabited. Aye, that was this devil's ballroom, thou meanest untenanted by man. Hast thou ever known the helplessness of being lost in the forest, Gottlob? In my own person, never, Master Burkhold, but in that of my herd, it is a misfortune that often befalls me, sinner that I am. I know not that sympathy with thy cows can teach thee the humiliation and desperation that come over the mind when we stand on this goodly earth, cut off from all communication with our fellows, in a desert, though surrounded by living men, deprived of the senses of sight and hearing for useful ends, and with all the signs of God before the eyes, and yet with none of the common means of enjoying his bounty from having lost the clue to his intentions." Must the teeth of necessity be idle, or the throat dry, Master Forester, because the path is hid? At such a moment the appetites are quieted, in the grand desire to return to our usual communication with the earth. It is like being restored to the helplessness of infancy, with all the wants and habits of manhood besetting the character and wishes. If thou callest such a condition a restoration, friend Burkhold, I shall make interest with St. Benedict that I may remain disposed to the end of my days." I weigh not the meaning of every word I utter, with the recollection of that helpless moment so fresh, but it was when the desolate feeling was strongest that I rode out of the chase upon the mountain heath. There appeared something before my sight that seemed a house, and by a bright light that glittered, as I fancied at the window, I felt again restored to intercourse with my kind. Thou usest thy terms with more discretion now, said the cowherd, fetching a heavy breath like one who was glad the difficulty had found a termination. I hope it was the abode of some substantial tenant of Lord Emick, who was not without the means of comforting a soul in distress. Gottlob, the dwelling was no other than the Tufelstein, and the light was a twinkling star that chance had brought in line with the rock. I take it for granted, Master Burkhold, thou didst not knock twice for admission at the door." I am not much governed by the vulgar legends and womanish superstitions of our hills, but... Softly, softly, friend Forester, what thou callest by name so irreverent are the opinions of all who dwell in or about Durkheim, knight or monk, burgher or count, has equally a respect for our venerable traditions. Tausend six und zwanzigs. What would become of us if had not a gory tale or some alarming and reverend spectacle of this sort to set up against the penances and prayers and masses of the friars of Limburg. As much wisdom and philosophy as thou wilt, foster brother of mine, but leave us our devil, if it be only to make battle against the abbot. Notwithstanding thy big words, I well know that none among us has at heart a greater dread of this very hill than thyself, Gottlob. I have seen thee sweat cold drops from thy forehead in crossing the heath after nightfall. Art quite sure t'was not the dew? We have heavy falls of that moisture in these hills when the earth is parched. Let it then be the dew. To oblige thee, Burkhold, I would willingly swear it was a water spout. But what didst thou make of the rock and the star? I could change the nature of neither. I pretend not to thy indifference to the mysterious power that rules the earth. But thou well knowest that fear never yet kept me from this hill. 
When a near approach showed me my error, I was about to turn away, not without crossing myself and repeating the Ave, as I am ready to acknowledge, but a glance upward convinced me that the stone was occupied. Occupied? I have always known that it was possessed, but never before did I think it was occupied. There was one seated on its uppermost projection as plainly to be seen as the rock itself. Whereupon thou madest manifest that good speed which has gained thee the favor of the count and thy post of forester? I hope the nerve to put the duties of my office in practice had their weight with Lord Emick, rejoined Burkhold a little quickly. I did not run, Gottlob, but I spoke to the being who had chosen a seat so remarkable at that late hour. Spite of his spirits and affected humor, the cowherd unconsciously drew nearer to his companion, casting at the same time an oblique glance in the direction of the suspected rock. Thou seemest troubled, Gottlob. Dost thou think I am without bowels? What shall a friend of mine be in this strait? And I not troubled? Heaven save thee, Burkhold, were the best cow in my herd off her stomach. I could not be in greater concern. Hadst any answer? I had, and the result has gone to show me, returned the forester, musing as he spoke, like one who was obtaining glimpses of long-concealed truth that our fears oftentimes prevent us from seeing things as they are, and are the means of nourishing our mistakes. I got an answer, and certainly contrary to what most in Durkheim would have believed, it was given in a human voice. That was encouraging, but it was hoarser than the roaring of a bull. It spoke mildly and in reason, Gottlob, as thou wilt readily believe when I tell thee it was no other than the voice of the anchorite of the cedars. Our acquaintance then and there commenced, since which time, as thou knowest well, it hath not flagged for want of frequent visits to his abode on my part. The cowherd walked on in silence for more than a minute, and then stopping short, he abruptly addressed his companion. And this, then, hath been thy secret, Burkhold, concerning the manner of commencing on thy new friendship. There is no other. I well knew how much thou wert fettered by the opinions of the country, and was afraid of losing thy company in these visits, were I, without caution, to tell all the circumstances of our interview. But now thou hast become known to the anchorite. I do not fear thy desertion. Never count upon too many sacrifices from thy friends, Master Burkhold. The mind of man is borne upon by so many fancies, is ruled by so many vagaries, and tormented by so many doubts, when there is question concerning the safety of the body, to say nothing of the soul, that I know no more rash confidence than to count too securely on the sacrifices of a friend. Thou knowest the path, and can return by thyself to the hamlet, if thou wilt, said the forester peevishly and not without severity. These are situations in which it is as difficult to go back as to go forward, observed Gottlob. Else, Burkhold, I might take thee at thy word, and go back to my careful mother, a good supper, and a bed that stands between a picture of the Virgin, one of St. Benedict, and one of my Lord, the Count. But for my concern for thee, I would not go another foot toward the camp. Do as thou wilt, said the forester, who appeared, however, to know the apprehension his companion felt of being left alone in that solitary and suspected spot, and who turned his advantage to good account by quickening his pace in such a manner as would have left Gottlob to his own thick-coming fancies, had he not diligently imitated his gait. Thou canst tell the people of Lord Emick that thou abandonest me on this hill. Nay, returned Gottlob, making a merit of necessity, 
If I do that or say that, they may make a benedicting of me and the abbot of Limburg to boot. As the cowherd, who felt all his master's antipathies against their religious neighbors, expressed his determination in a voice strong as his resolution, confidence was restored between the friends, who continued their progress with swift paces. The place was, sooth to say, one every way likely to quicken any dormant seeds of superstition that education or tradition or local opinions had implanted in the human breast. By the time our adventurers had approached a wood of low cedars which, apparently encircled in a round wall that was composed of a confused but vast pile of fallen stones, grew upon the advanced spur of the hills. Behind them lay the heath-like plain, while the bald rock which the moonbeams had just lighted, raising its head from out of the earth, resembled some gloomy monument placed in the center of the waste to mark and to render obvious, by comparison, the dreary solitude of the naked fields. The background was the dark slopes and ridges of the forest of the Hart Mountains. On their right was the glen, or valley, from which they had just ascended, and on their front, looking a little obliquely from the grove, the plain of the Palatnut, which lay in misty obscurity like a dim sea of cultivation hundreds of feet beneath their elevated stand. It was rare, indeed, that any immediate dependent of the Count Emic, and more especially any of those who dwelt in or about his castle, and who were likely to be called into his service at an unexpected moment, ventured so far from the fortress, and in the direction of the hostile abbey, without providing himself with the means of offense and defense. Burkhold wore, as wont, his hunting knife or the short straight sword, which to this day is carried by that description of European dependent called a chasseur and who is seen degraded to the menial offices of a footman standing behind the carriages of ambassadors and princes, reminding the observant spectator of the regular and certain decadency of the usages of feudal times. Neither had Gottlieb been neglectful of his personal security as respects human foes, for on the subject of resisting all such attacks, his manhood was above reproach, as had been proved in more than one of those bloody frays which in that age were of frequent occurrence between the vassals of the minor German princes. The cowherd had provided himself with a heavy weapon that his father had often wielded in battle, and which needed all the vigor of the muscular arms of the son to flourish with a due observance of the required positions and attitudes. Firearms were of too much value and of too imperfect use to be resorted to on every light occasion, like that which had now drawn the Foster Brothers, for such, supported by long habit, was the secret of the intimacy between the forester and the cowherd, from their hamlet to the hill of Durkheim. Burkhold loosened his couteau de chasse as he turned by the ancient gateway, whose position was known merely by an interruption of the ditch that had protected this face of the wall, and an opening in the wall itself to enter the enclosure, which the reader will at once recognize as the pagan's camp of the introduction. At the same moment, Gottlieb cast his heavy weapon from his shoulder and grasped its handle in a more scientific manner. There was certainly no enemy visible to justify these movements, but the increasing solitude of the place and that impression of danger which besets the faculties when we find ourselves in situations favorable to deeds of violence probably induced the double and common caution. The light of the moon, which was not yet full, had not sufficient power to penetrate the thick branches of the cedars. And when the youths were fairly beneath the gloomy foliage, 
Although not left in the ordinary darkness of the clouded night, they were perhaps in that very species of dull and misty illumination which, by leaving objects uncertain while visible, is the best adapted to undermine the confidence of a distrustful spirit. There was little wind, but the sighs of the night air were plaintively audible while the adventurers picked their way among the fragments of the place. It had been elsewhere said that the Heidenmauer was originally a Roman camp. The warlike and extraordinary people who had erected these advanced works on the remotest frontier of their wide empire had, of course, neglected some of the means that were necessary under the circumstances either for their security or for their comfort. The first had been sufficiently obtained by the nearly isolated position of the hill, protected, as it was, by walls so massive and so high as those must have been, which had consumed the quantity of materials still visible in the large circuit that remained. While the interior furnished abundant proofs that the latter had not been neglected, and its intersecting remains over which Gottlob more than once stumbled as he advanced into the shadows of the place. Here and there, a ruined habitation, more or less dilapidated, was still standing, furnishing like the memorable remains of Pompeii and Herculaneum, interesting and infallible evidence of the usages of those who have so long since departed to their eternal rest. It would seem, by the rude repairs which rather injured than embellished these touching, though simple monuments of what the interior of the camp had been in its day of power and pride, that modern adventurers had endeavored to turn them to account by converting the falling huts into habitations appropriated to their own temporary uses. All, however, appeared to have been long before finally abandoned. For as Burkhold and his companions stole cautiously among the crumbling stones, the gaping rents and roofless walls denoted hopeless decay. At length the youths paused and fastened their looks in a common direction, as if apprised that they were near the goal of their expedition. In a part of the grove where the cedars grew more dense and luxuriant than on most of that stony and broken soil, stood a single low building, which, of all there, had the air of being still habitable. Like the others, it had been originally constructed by the masters of the world, or restored on the foundations of some Roman construction by the followers of Attila, who, it will be remembered, had passed a winter in this camp, and it was now rendered weatherproof by the usual devices of the poor and laborious. There was a single window, a door, and a rude chimney, which the climate and the elevated situation of the place rendered nearly indispensable. The light of the dim torch shone through the former, the only sign that the hut was tenanted, for on the exterior, with the exception of the rough repairs just mentioned, all around it lay in the neglected and eloquent stillness of ruin. The reader will not imagine in this description any of that massive grandeur which so insensibly attaches itself to most that is connected with the Roman name. For while, in the nature of things, the most ponderous and the most imposing of the public works of that people are precisely those which are the most likely to have descended to our own times. The traveler often meets with memorials of their power that are so frail and perishable in their construction as to owe their preservation, in a great measure, to an accidental combination of circumstances favorable to such a result. Still, the Roman was ordinarily as much greater in little things if connected with a public object as he excelled all who have succeeded him in those which were of more importance. The Ringmauer, or Heidenmauer, is a strong proof of what we say. There is not an arch, nor a tomb, nor a gate, nor a paved road of any description in the vicinity of Durkheim to show that the post was more than a temporary military position. 
And yet, the presence of its former occupants is established by more evidence than would probably be found a century hence, were half of the present cities of Christendom to be suddenly abandoned. But these evidences are rude and suited to the objects which had brought them into existence. The forester and the cowherd stood long regarding the solitary hut which had arrested their looks, like men hesitating to proceed. "'I had more humor for the company of the honest anchorite, Master Burkhold,' said the latter, "'before thou madest me acquainted with his fondness for taking the night air on the Tufelstein. "'Thou hast not fear, Gottlob, thou who bearest so good a name for courage among our youths. "'I shall be the last to accuse myself of cowardice or of any discreditable quality, friend Forrester, "'but prudence is a virtue in a youth, as the abbot of Limburg himself would swear, were he here.' "'He is not present in his own reverend and respected person,' said a voice so nigh the ear of Gottlob as to cause him to jump nimbly aside. "'But one who may humbly represent some portion of his sanctity is not wanting to affirm the truth of what thou sayest, son.' The startled young men saw that a monk of the opposite mountain had unexpectedly appeared between them. They were on the lands of the abbey, or rather on the ground in dispute between the burghers of Durkheim and the convent, but actually in possession of the latter, and they felt the insecurity of their situation as the dependence of the Count of Hartenburg. Neither spoke, therefore, for each was striving to invent some plausible pretext for his appearance in a place so unfrequented, and which, in general, was held in so little favor by the neighboring peasantry. "'You are youths of Durkheim,' asked the monk." endeavoring to observe their features by the imperfect light that penetrated the foliage of the dark cedars. Gottlob, whose besetting infirmity was a too exuberant fluency of tongue, took on himself the task of answering. "'We are youths, reverend father,' he said. "'As thy quick and sagacious sight hath so well seen, I will not deny my years, and if I would, the devil who besets all between fifteen and five and twenty in the shape of some giddy infirmity would soon betray the imposture.' of Durkheim, son? As there is question between the abbey and the town concerning these hills, we might not stand any better in thy favor, holy Benedictine, were we to say yes. In that suspicion thou dost little justice to the abbey, son. We may defend the rights of the church, confided in their temporalities, as they are to an unworthy and sinful brotherhood without feeling any uncharitableness against those who believe they have claims better than our own. The love of mammon is feeble in bosoms that are devoted to self-denying and repentant lives. Say then boldly that you are a Durkheim and dread not my displeasure. Since it is thy good pleasure, benevolent bunk, I will say boldly that we are of Durkheim. And you come to consult the holy anchorite of the cedars? It is not necessary that I should tell one of thy knowledge of human nature, Reverend Benedictine, that the failing of all dwellers in small towns is an itching to look into the affairs of their neighbors. Himmel, if our worthy burgomasters would spare a little time from the affairs of other people to look into their own, we should all be greatly gainers, they in their property and we in our comfort. The Benedictine laughed and he motioned for the youths to follow, advancing himself toward the hut. Since you have given yourselves this trouble, no doubt with a praiseworthy and pious intention, my sons, he said, let not respect for my presence change your purpose. We will go into the cell of the holy hermit in company, and if there should be advantage from his blessing or discourse, believe me, 
I will not be so unjust as to envy either of you a share. The manner in which the friars of Limburg deny themselves advantages in order to do profit to their fellow Christians is in the mouths of all, far and near, and this generosity of thine, reverend monk, is quite of a piece with the well-earned reputation of the whole brotherhood. As Gottlob spoke gravely and bowed with sufficient reverence, the Benedictine was in a slight degree his dupe, though, as he passed beneath the low portal of the hut, he could not prevent a lurking suspicion of the truth. End of Volume 1, Chapter 2 Read by Joel Kendrick